All right, so as I said last week, uh, for those of you who have Needham, I think most of you uh, have your own copy of Needham, um, I omitted point five, which is looking at the Nestorian church in Persia. Um, and uh, I just covered the first four points, and I took the fourth point and uh, split it into two and made a fifth point. Um, and we got, we covered, uh, we reviewed the, the um, interpretive background and baggage and hills to die on that the two schools, um, the two main schools at the time had. We reviewed uh, Antioch, who preferred a literal hermeneutic uh, before going to uh, allegory or, or spiritual interpretations. Anybody remember what their hill to die on was? You have, you have Antioch and you have Alexandria. What was Antioch's hill to die on? What was, what was the theological truth that they know is true and they're not going to give that up? What one one thing I think you can that you can um, remember so to make these easier, uh, and, and I, I went and um, read up on a different book to try to get somebody else's words to, to try to help make this make sense. I th- one thing that we can uh, use as a mnemonic device is that this whole controversy revolves around um, the numbers one and two, so. Yeah, so so one um, one of those two schools is adamant that Jesus is one person. Another school is adamant that Jesus Christ has two distinct, unmixed, undiluted natures that are not lost or confused in any way. So one school. Uh, what's the school that that emphasizes the one? The one person. Alexandria or Antioch? Alexandria. Alexandria is convinced that Jesus Christ is one person. They're also convinced that he is fully God. And the, the, um, the, air, the ground that they were willing to give ground on is for believing that he's fully God. They're going to... They're gonna, uh, smudge a little bit when it comes to his humanity, right? Bo- both the underlying issue in this controversy is that both sides are having difficulty explaining how you ha- how you- how God and man are united together in Jesus Christ. That that is the underlying issue. Alexandria is convinced he's one person and he's fully God, and how he's man at the same time they don't really care. And so that was Apollinarius's error is that um, we know he's fully God and he's mostly man, but he doesn't have a human mind because what co- what what is the human mind the cause of? What comes out of the heart? Sin. So the Alexandrians believed if he is fully man in every capacity, in every faculty, in everything that makes us men, then that would mean he has a mind, which means that he also does what? Sin. So, and does, does Jesus sin? Therefore, he must not have a 
Okay. So um, the the other school, Antioch, what was their hill to die on? Okay, let me let me go here. Yeah, the, their emphasis was was on two. Alexandria was on one, one person. Antioch was on two. To what? Natures. That was their hill to die on. What was the error that resulted because of the overemphasis on two distinct natures? Duality of what? Persons. Because typically when you when you have when you come across two natures, when you look at this naturally, that means you have two entities, two people. Um, and so that that was the error of the of the Antiochians, um, uh, as we see in Nestorianism. So, again, both of these are uh, the, the central issue which unites these two controversies is they don't understand how humanity and divinity are united and joined together in the one person of Jesus Christ. So, uh, okay, so Apollinaris. Apollinaris uh, was the first to rise up. He says he's fully God, only partially man, because he doesn't have a human mind. That, uh, at the Council of Constantinople in 381, that's uh, rendered a heresy. And then the pendulum swings the other way with the rise of Nestorius, uh, originally from Antioch, whose hill to die on was the two natures. Uh, he, uh, remember, he, uh, he had an issue over the, over the title Theotokos, which means what? Birth giver of God. And this is where um, Bruce Shelley says this. Nestorius insisted that calling Mary the mother of God was tantamount to declaring that the divine nature itself, not just the human nature, but the divine nature as well, could be created, gestated, and born of a woman. In other words, God could be three days old. Which, again, the Arian heresy started because of a claim that there was a time when the son was not. So they'd been through all that. They're not about to concede or allow any possibility uh, of, of, the, of this thought that God can come into being. That God can start or, or, or become. Um, so Nestorianism is... Uh, um, at the Council of Ephesus in 431 is so. Okay, so this is right around the and 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 the one thing that perpetuated the problem was were there was there clear understanding over the word person and nature at this point? Right. This is the same thing that happened during the Arian controversy because of hypostasis and usia. Both could mean nature or person. Well. Uh, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it, and the very same problem over over two different over a, a different word this time physis happens because um, the Alexandrians say that in Christ there is one incarnate physis of the logos. Alexandrians mean there's one person because their emphasis is one. The Antioch the Antiochians hear that and they think. They think that you mean one nature because they're saying one physis. The Alexandrians mean one person. The, the Antiochians respond, no, there is two physis within, within the Christ. 
What do the Alexandrians hear when they uh, hear in their minds when they hear two physicists? Do they hear two natures or or two what? Two persons. Do you, do you get the issue? Do you get the confusion? Okay. Right. Okay. Okay. So again, uh, Council of Ephesus. Um, this was this was uh, started by the uh, patriarch of Alexandria, whose emphasis was the one person that he's divine, uh, named Cyril. Um, he convenes. He convenes the council before. Uh, so Nestorius is there, right? But Nestorius's team, uh, Nestorius's supporters from Antioch, aren't uh, aren't there in time, um, and so uh, uh, Cyril sees the advantage of of convening the council when Nestorius is by his lonesome. Uh, so he starts the council. the The language issue is not resolved, and um, obviously Nestorius is at a disadvantage, and so he loses. Nestorius is exiled. Um, his view. His emphasis uh, on clearly articulating and delineating between two distinct natures is uh, is not emphasized, um, and uh, as well as Pelagianism, it's considered a heresy. And uh, when Nestorius's supporters do arrive, um, they see that the that the this other council has already started, and so they have nothing else to do but start their own council. And the first council deposes Nestorius. Nestorius's supporters, uh, uh, in their council, they dispose Cyril. So both sides are holding a council, and they both say t- uh, that the other bishop is is out of here. He's he's uh, he needs to be disciplined. So um, Emperor Theodosius actually steps in and holds a third council, and uh, uh, because. Um, because Nestorius, Nestorius didn't do himself any favors. He, um, he, uh, he was, uh, he showed hatred and violence towards Jews and other heretics. And then, uh, which, which made him unpopular, uh, among the people. He also, um, showed hospitality ironically. So on one hand, he, he's really mean to some people. Uh, on the other hand, he, he shows hospitality, to all the wrong people. He shows hospitality to um, people that the Alexandrian bishop exiled. So that makes the Alexandrian bishop angry. He shows hospitality to people that the emperor exiled. So that makes the emperor angry. Um, so nobody likes Nestorius, and he is he's kicked out. Um, emperor Theodosius, you know, even though this council concludes with the Alexandrians winning and the Antiochs uh, losing, he realizes that people are still very upset. And so he takes uh, Nestorius's uh, top guy, John of Antioch. He's currently the bishop of Antioch. He's, he takes John of Antioch, and he takes Cyril, bishop of Alexandria. So basically the two, now that Nestorius is out of the picture, the two guys that are representative heads of the two schools. He puts them aside. He puts the, the, the this is our get along shirt on both of them puts them in a room and says, you guys need to hammer out some kind of peace pact. Uh, and this is called the formula of union. That's the foo in 433. And he tells, uh, he tells Cyril of Alexandria, 
you guys need to uh, use language that is a little more clear, a little more precise. He tells John of Antioch that you're going to have to accept the fact that Nestorius is exiled. And uh, the, the title, Theotokos, that, that started this whole problem, uh, we still get to use that. So this peace pact lasts less than 10 years because both Cyril and John of Antioch, th- th- these two guys that are, the, that are the, the figureheads of the two schools, they both die in the early 440s. And when, this, when that happens, the um, conflict breaks out because nobody's following the formula of union. You know, it's just a piece of paper, and what do we care about pieces of paper? So uh, there is a controversy around this guy named Eutyches. Everybody say Eutyches. Eutyches. Um, he is a hyper, hyper Alexandrian. Um, okay, again, who, what was Alexandria's emphasis? What was their hill to die on? Was it, was it centered around the number one or the number two? Number one. Jesus has one what? One person. Okay. Now, he, as I said, he's a hyper-Alexandrian. Um, he, he goes overboard and means um, he, that means he has one nature as well. Uh, Apollinarius said he's fully God and he's mostly human. Lacking what? Lack, well, lacking the mind because that's where sin was. This, this guy, Eutyches, he says he, he, has one, he is one person and one nature at the same time. So um, Eutyches is, uh, is condemned by the bishop of Constantinople, a guy named Flavian, and, uh, and is kicked out. Well, Eutyches, despite being a heretic, he has friends in high places. He is friends with the bishop of Alexandria, a man by the name of Dioscorus. And I, I love Needham's description of uh, Dioscorus, that he was, um, he had all of Cyril's uh, violent hostility to Constantinople uh, and the Antiochenes, but none of Cyril's thoughtful mind or penetrating spiritual insight. In fact, Dioscorus was little better than a theological thug, a gangster strutting around in a bishop's robe. That's, that's, the, that's the chief pastor of, uh, of Alexandria. So um, at, at Dioscorus's behest, the emperor summons a second council of Ephesus at 449, and guess who gets to lead it? Dioscorus, the thug. Dioscorus is, uh, is, is, is leading this council, um, the second council of Constantinople, um, Eutyches is reinstated. Flavian, uh, the bishop of Constantinople, is exiled. Uh, the, the formula of union is just completely outlawed. Um, uh, as I said, they, 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 they kick out Flavian and other Antiochene bishops. Pope Leo isn't even given an invite in time, and so he sends a letter called Leo, Leo's Tome. That's not even acknowledged or read. Um, and in triumphant zeal, some Alexandrian monks uh, under, you know, so these are Dioscorus's uh, henchmen, they beat Flavian, who's already been deposed. He's, he's being sent into exile. That's not enough. They beat him to death. 
and then Dioscorus replaces um, Flavian with, uh, with, with a bishop puppet of his own by the name of Anatolius. So Pope Leo, over in, in the West in Rome, he is not happy one bit about how this has happened, uh, and he calls it a, a synod, which is like a gathering or an assembly. He calls it a synod of robbers, and that name stuck, which is why if you Google robbers synod, uh, this is what comes up. Poor Flavian. Okay, so fortunately, and 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 I said, um, real at the onset of, of this study, one of the one of the reasons why we study church history is to see how God intervenes and and builds and keeps His church despite the sinful intentions of men. Um, that uh, Emperor Theodosius II, who was the emperor at this time, he was the emperor who allowed all this to happen. He was pro-Alexandrian. He was he was in cahoots with Dioscorus, he dies in a horse riding accident, just coincidentally. Within a year, he dies. Um, And he is succeeded not by a pro-Alexandrian emperor, but by an emperor who is sympathetic to Antioch, and he's sympathetic to Rome. I think his name was Marcion. Uh, Within a year of him stepping uh, stepping onto the throne, he summons a council at Chalcedon. This is the fourth ecumenical council and to make a long story short um uh the and, and by this time even Alex, most of alexandrian bishops realized that the guy that the guys up at the top the guys who are the the the, the leading the alexandrian charge they're all corrupt so even the alexandrian like everybody wants dioscorus and his thugs gone um and so to make a long story short uh the controversy, the, the disagreement um, is settled when they realize this, this, uh, uh, this issue that they have over the, over the word physis. And they originally start with a statement that says Christ is made, uh, was made incarnate from two natures because nobody, disagree, nobody disagreed that he came from two natures. At one point, uh, he was fully human, and at one point, he was fully divine. The question is, is what is he now what what is he as he is in the new testament scriptures is he still fully human and is he still fully divine so the the statement is changed or adopted to from two natures to in two natures and so they sign uh the formula at the end and it's called the creed of chalcedon and you can see on page um needham provides it on page 304 and 305 and you can see needham needham uh does you a favor when he uh uses capital letters to show the phrases and words which are appeasing to the alexandrians and the underlined words which uh are appeasing the antiochian theology what this creed basically says is this to to um to appease the alexandrians the creed admits he is one person and they, you know, there's no, there's no confusion over are we talking about person or are we talking about nature this time. He is one person. The, the, the person of Jesus the man is the same person as the divine eternal son of God. Um, and being, um, being one person, the one person of God fully experienced everything that the man 
experience, which means God experienced being born. He experienced growing up. He experienced learning. He experienced puberty and maturity and, and all of the range of, uh, of human emotions and human experiences and sensations, even suffering, bleeding, and dying and death. God, in that sense, God bled and died. And that, that is something that the Alexandrians have been trying to uphold the entire time. He has to be God to save you. Um, and so in understanding that, um, Mary was, because God was born, then it's appropriate to call Mary the birther or the bearer of God. Um, the creed appeases the Antiochenes by, by expressing that his human and divine natures each kept their own distinct qualities and properties. There's no mixing. There's no blending. There's no sinking. There's no bleeding over or, or synthesizing. At the end of the day, he's still fully human. At the end of the day, he's still fully God. Now, how, how you explain that, I have no idea. I don't think anybody can. Uh, and that's actually going to come up to today a little bit in the sermon. When, when you think about God, a being who's fully divine, fully God, eternal, he is going to suffer and be spit on and, and, and have his back shredded so his kidneys are exposed and he's going to bleed and die. God is going to bleed and die. Um, they did uh, clear up the, the unclear language. Um, by using this phrase, and this is this is where we get uh, what we call a hypostatic union, which you would have thought would have already been made clear like 50 or 60 years prior. But they said Christ was one hypostasis, which what do you think they mean by this word? Person or nature? He is one person in two natures. That's where we get the um, hypostatic union from the in its clearest form, is from the Creed of Chalcedon. Okay, so just kind of a, you know, a so what, you know, which I try to end my sermons with. So what? What's wrong with Apollinarianism? And let me let me just say with this caveat that Apollinarianism isn't really a modern-day threat because I think, if, if anything, we would have the inverse. You know, it's not his... Um, Apollinarianism says he's not fully human. If there's um, if there's any doubt, it's really not with it's not it's not with the fact that Jesus of Nazareth was a real man who lived and died. Where's the doubt lie between the two natures in modern skepticism? Yeah, yeah. People typically today people have, I mean, they people say he didn't live at all that the whole thing was just made up. But if people are going to take issue with one of his two natures, it's typically typically going to be his divinity. Um, so so that uh, Apollinarianism, on one hand, is not really uh, a modern-day threat in, uh, in our anti-spiritualistic society. Um, but j- let's just look at this because it, it's good to study history. Apollinari- Apollinarianism, can, can everybody say that? Apollinarianism. Okay. Apollinarianism says Jesus didn't have a fully human mind, thus making him 
less than than human, less than man. If he didn't have a human mind, there is no basis. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that we're going to have a resurrection like him. Um, we, we are, we die in, in his death. We are, we will be born again in a likeness of his. And, and, and John says that in first John, in first uh, John three or four, that when we see him, we will see him as he is because we will be like him. Okay. So, and, and, and that's the basis for which the Alexandrians said that, um, what hasn't been assumed, what hasn't been taken up, hasn't been healed. So if Jesus didn't have a human mind, then there's no reason to think that in heaven, when we are like Jesus, that we are, that we would have a sanctified, healed, glorified, or in other words, sinless mind in our resurrection body. You would have to conclude either we're still going to have the same fallen mind. We may have a, we may have a glorified body, but our mind would still be sinful, or we wouldn't have a mind at all. Heaven doesn't allow sin, then, and our minds are sinful, then we would basically become robots in heaven. Neither of those are appealing, and um, fortunately, neither of those are true. So, um, that, that's kind of metaphysical or, or uh, theoretical, right? That, uh, but this, this look at this in terms of salvation. If Jesus is not fully man, he cannot relate to our temptations. What is what does uh, Hebrews 4.15 say? We have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted in all things as we were except without sin. So if he didn't really have a human mind, if, he was, if, his, if his divine mind is basically occupying a human body in the, kind of like an avatar, right? Remember that movie with James Cameron? Um, uh, or, or, you know, imagine a, like a drone controller. If, if the divine mind is, is up there somewhere and just, you know, sending signals down to the human body, and he's not really human, he's just kind of uh, dwelling in, in the body um, like a spirit, then Jesus didn't, I mean, could you really say Jesus suffered? Could you really say that Jesus was hungry or thirsty or was sorrowful or grieved? Uh, if, if he wasn't fully man in every way that we are, he can't relate to our temptations. More importantly, if he's not fully a man, if he's not fully like us, he can't be our substitute for sins. He can't be the second Adam if he's not made like Adam in every way. Uh, and if you don't have a substitute, where are you still? You're still, say, say it louder. You're still in your sin if you're, if, if you are not, uh, if you don't have a substitute, and you will pay for your sins in judgment, because otherwise God is not holy and just. So, can you see what's at stake if uh, if Apollinarianism is allowed to perpetuate in the church? You, you don't have salvation. You don't have a great high priest. You don't have the God Man who bled and died for you. Okay, so what's wrong with Nestorianism? And and I I didn't think I didn't see this at first. But, uh, you know, I, I, have, um, I have podcasts that I listen to that I, I, I've heard more Christian-y junk than I hope any of you ever, ever listen to. And um, I, have heard, I have heard bits of this. But l- let me read what Bruce Shelley says concerning Nestorianism. If Nestor- and this is in his book, Church History in Plain Language. Uh, it's a really good book um, if, you want, if you want a supplementary read. He says, if Nestorius believed... 
that only the willpower of the human man, Jesus, held him in a moral and volitional union with the divine word. In, in other words, Jesus is just a man, and he is united with or he is associated with, with, the, with the Logos, with the, with the divine son. Um, you know, they, are, they, are, they are two people who are brought together. If, if that's all that Jesus is, and the only difference between him is that um, let's see, if only the willpower of the human mind, Jesus held him in a moral and volitional union with the divine word, then the difference between Christians and Christ himself is one of degree. Jesus was more attentive and submissive to God than, than we are. In other words, Jesus was just more in touch with the Holy Spirit. Jesus was, was tighter with God. He was more in sync. He, he got in the, in the Christian zone. Uh, he was not divine, but was only a loftier picture of how close a person can be to God. Uh, and Jesus is a human model, not a divine savior. Do you, do you see the difference? Some evangelical believers fall sway to the same failure in doctrine. They seek Jesus as a role model for self-help and, in, and ignore the life-giving transformation offered by Emmanuel, which is God with us. And I have heard, mostly within uh, charismatic circles, I have heard them quote passages like uh, John fourteen twelve, when Jesus tells his disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me and the works that I do, he will do also. And the greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. I have heard teachers and preachers say things like, if you just have faith, you will, you can and you will do all the kinds of things that Jesus did in his ministry. If you just have enough faith, if you can just reach down inside, pull your spiritual self up by your bootstraps, crank it to 11, and if you are obedient enough, if you're spiritual enough, if you give enough, if you sow enough of a, of a, of a seed to the church, if you do enough, you can be like Jesus. And so Jesus is not the one who saves you. He's the role model for which you need to strive for. Do you see the difference? That is not a grace-based faith. That is a works-based experience. Okay, what's wrong with Eutychianism? Eutychianism was the one that tried to combine the two and say he's one person with one nature. Um, if Jesus is neither uh, 100% divine or, uh, and 100% human at the same time, you get, you get the... Pro I did it again. You get the problems of both heresies in one. A rope can't go through a rope. Yeah, I know. So, okay. And so this is a chart that I got from, um, from Bruce Shelley's book, um, Church History in Plain Language. This is a chart that will be very helpful for the review that we will do when we are done with, uh, with the second half of Needham. Um, this chart conveniently shows you the first four ecumenical councils. Ecumenical meaning what? Worldwide. So ecumenical council means that it's not just a council where a couple of churches. It, it was a council where all the bishops were encouraged to come. Uh, council of Nicaea, the very first one, arose because of, the, of a heretic named Arius. What did he deny? Deity of the Son. There was a time when the Son was not. God is immortal. 
And Jesus isn't divine because there was a time where he didn't exist. So um, he said that the son didn't share in the father's essence or or nature. And so if he is divine, he's he's less divine than God. Um, So that's where that's where this whole thing got started. And it's not down here till you get a a clearer definition. Uh, 50, almost 50 years later, Constantinople, rise of Apollinarius. He's 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 fully divine. But what 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 does he deny? Jesus is fully divine. We got that. But he's not fully man because what does he lack? Because the mind produces sin. And Jesus didn't. Therefore, he doesn't have a. I like this. It's excellent. Okay. Uh, uh, 50 50 something years later, you have uh, Ephesus because of Nestorius, who uh, his emphasis was on two natures which caused him to err in saying that Jesus also had two persons, right? Uh, He failed to affirm the union of the divine and human natures in the one person. You know, he he said that the the union was basically uh, just a a, a willful or moral union between the divine and human. And then uh, uh, only 20 years later at Chalcedon, uh, because of a guy who merged these two, Eutyches, you have um, you have them produce a creed that says he is one person in two natures. Yes. Questions, comments, inquiries, complaints. Check, check. Today, what do we mean by person and what do we mean by nature? What do you think we mean by person? I mean, I, I'm, I'm open for criticism on this. I would say one person is is uh, one sentience, one individual. Uh, uh, I don't know how to de- how to define a person. If you can't define it, how do you expect us to? Because you're a teacher and you have a you have no. a you have a master's degree in administration and you're smart. Uh, a person is a is a sentience. Uh, a, a person. Has uh, uh, has a self and has a will. Yes. Right. Personhood demands distinction. So while you have three and one in the Trinity, the word per- personhood enables us to distinguish rather than uh, merge them together into m- the, the, like the is- Islamic understanding of, of who God is. He's one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to nod my head as if I understand. I mean, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, be, I'll be transparent. This is not something that I, I, you know, I didn't anticipate this question. That's an excellent question. That's an excellent question. I didn't anticipate it. So I'm, I'm uh, fumbling over my words here. Oh, George, be nice line in a song that says God are in three persons blessed trinity is that correct yes thank you I have a question okay um, so all this all this theological talk 
when we look at history, it seems to divide more than it does unite. So my question with all these distinctions that these people are making in this particular century, uh, how is it how is it important to us here at SVBC that we think about these things? How is it important? Why, why is it important? Yeah, why should we focus be focusing on these distinctions for us here? Because I would say it's important for us to focus on these things because these are questions that come up as you read your Bible, as you you know listen to sermons, as you read Christian books. Um, these are questions that just come up in Christian life that we are often, uh, I would say, not inclined or prepared to answer. And so it's good for us to it's good for us to ponder them in a, in a setting like this where they are brought up, um, particularly because I mean, look at how many years it took for them to come to a clear understanding. We have the benefit. We have the benefit of of years and years and years and hours of study and, and uh, theological toiling, and we get the benefit of the conclusion of their studies. And, you know, they may not all have come to an accurate conclusion, but at least we can see uh, the conclusions they came to and how they got there. And that should be used to help us formulate our own conclusions so that, so that we are accurate in our understanding. Did I make – was that – The questions that you're saying – you're referring to as important for us to think about or the questions you're saying come up when we read our Bible, are you, is that basically the is Jesus 100% God and 100% man? Right. And questions like that. We're <coughs> – one of the one of the issues that we can okay. one of the issues that we continue to see even today is uh, is is salvation based on faith or is it based on our works mm-hmm. and uh, as he explained in the the what if section like the uh, if if Jesus is just the the best version and was closer to the Holy Spirit than the rest of us, then it's a work-based salvation. Um, and clearly that that doesn't work and that's not what we believe. Um, but that's questions that we still face every day here now. Let me, let me um, before somebody else raises a hand, let me, let me, this just came to me. Um, why it's important to study this. Um, not only do we know, can we be assured that because Jesus was fully God that uh, and fully man, you know, looking at this in terms of salvation, we can be assured that your salvation is, is, is good and true and right and, and effective. But uh, because Jesus was fully God, um, and we know that, you know, God never lies and God is omniscient and God knows everything and he's all powerful. If Jesus is fully God, then we can trust uh, we can entrust our problems to him. We can, you know, when, when he commands us to go and make, um, go and make disciples of all the nations and to teach people to observe everything that he has taught, we're not doing that just because, well, Christianity is what I grew up with, and you know, I was I was born into a Christian family, and 
so that's just what I, you know, that's just my lot in life. No, you are, you have responded to the, to the call of God himself who has called you not only to be saved, but also to go out and share the news with others. If he is fully God, then you can trust that his word is true and, and inerrant and not subject to change or degradation over, over the sands of time or cultural change or whatever. If he is fully God, then your salvation is intact. And I don't have my, my Bibles over there. The word of God is still true and valid today and will always be valid today because God never changes. Is that, was that a better answer to why we need to study this thing? I was going to say something kind of similar just to kind of continue the conversation. I, that I just saw it did. in your eye, and I beat you to the punch. I know. Yeah. Um, but Davis and I were talking about this earlier this week, actually, and it's the infallibility of Scripture. Yeah. And just to, just to get to it, you know, our understanding of Scripture is fallible, right? Yeah. And language is corrupted by the fall, and our expression of ideas that God has given us is corrupted by the fall. And so all these guys are struggling with that, right? That's the reality is these discourses show how our sin nature completely makes us unable to understand God in his perfection because he hasn't revealed it, number one. But number two, you know, he, he gives us an ability to understand him as much as we need, but even our ability to express that understanding is flawed. So... Worldviews, I think, is what we're seeing here. The North and the South constantly feuding over the different kind of spiritual traditions they come from. And they're making their own emphasis and their own, their own applications. So the mystics in the South, right, are really struggling with saying, hey, you know, is man divine completely? Can we be divine completely? And that's kind of the question they really want answered. And so that's why they're so ardent and ardently opposed to any other kind of thought because that's the one that they want. But anyway, that's just my two senses. Scripture um, is infallible. We are not. I'll, I'll, you had one, and then I'll, we'll close. All right. We believe uh, Christ was fully man and fully God, and uh, he had a, a man nature. Uh, he was sinless, and so therefore, what? I mean, he was tempted. And we got to believe that he was fully tempted. What do we believe is going on there as to why he did not sin? Did you know he had the temptation, and then the the God part of him said, "No, wait a minute, you're not going there." Or, well, and, and see, th- this is getting into the metaphysical nature of of the hypostatic union that we there's nothing we cannot relate to that. You know, we don't know what it's like to not be tempted by sin that being being subjected to sin and tempted to sin that's that that describes our entire experience um so somehow we believe that he was it was fair that he was tempted but didn't i mean to us believing that well he didn't sin yeah Uh, yeah i i I will say this: um, Romans five says that those who are those who are born in the first Adam are enslaved to sin because sin spread to all men. So we we are born with a natural inclination to sin, and a, and a uh, we are born with a natural enslavement to sin. Jesus wasn't. So um, 
you know, as much as I can from an outsider looking in, you know, I'm, I, I'm looking into somebody else's mansion, you know, looking at what's going on in there. That, that, that's, that's the best we can do looking at the life of Jesus and trying to figure out his metaphysical properties and psychological properties from the scriptures. Um, so we know on one hand he wasn't, he wasn't enslaved to sin, but on the other hand, scripture says he was tempted. So I have no idea how to adequately express what did it look like him to have the possibility, like for him to be tempted, but to never be te- to never actually give in. I mean, uh, doesn't Hebrews say that he was um, he was tempted to the point of bloodshed? That's that's tempted more than we are ever tempted. So I mean, that's that's a great question. That's one of the reasons why this thing took how many years? to conclude all right let's close lord thank you for today uh thank you again just for um the production uh of this uh definition of this creed which you um brought about in your church by rising up the right men at the right time um thank you lord for your provision thank you for keeping your church and for the promise that you gave to build it amen